I have on the show today the author of this great book, The Best Beloved Thing is Justice. The author is Lisa Kloppenberg. She is the dean of Santa Clara Law School, and she's also the acting president of Santa Clara University. And we also have on the podcast today the subject of that book. And she is an incredible woman who is incredibly special to me, a federal judge, Dorothy Wright Nelson. She was my first boss at a law school. I worked as her law clerk. She officiated at my wedding. She created uh, this incredible organization called the Western Justice Center that focuses on nonviolent conflict resolution. We do a lot of work in schools. Uh, to get kids to act right and to resolve uh, their disputes in ways that are better than some grown-ups do. Um, Judge Nelson was dean of USC Law School at a time when there was no other woman law school dean in the country. Uh, I am really grateful to her for a lot of my life, frankly, because she's a mentor and a friend, uh, and she's really always been there for me, and I'm really grateful to Lisa for writing this book. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with these very, very special women. Judge Nelson and Dean Kloppenberg, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor. It's my honor. <laughs> I have told my viewers and my listeners uh, about you, Judge. I've told them about the book, uh, Lisa. I've explained uh, to the extent I can how important you are to me. But um, let's start at the very beginning and let's start with you, Judge. So for people who, unlike Lisa and me, did not have the great joy uh, and honor of working for you, Tell us why you wanted to be a judge in the first place. Why did you choose this path? As always, Donna, you ask good questions. Well, when I was in the 11th grade, I was a counselor for the Culver Palms YMCA. I had 18 little eight-year-olds, mostly from underprivileged homes. And as I enjoyed my time with them, I found that many of them were living in very bad homes they were living really at a poverty level. And I kept saying, we've got to do something about this. When I found that children were being undernourished and I would investigate, well, they say, oh, the law says this, or the person in charge, or the commissioner said this. And I went home and said to my parents, you know, I don't think I want to be a social worker. I want to be a judge so I can tell people to improve these conditions. So that's really what I had in mind. I didn't think I'd necessarily be a judge. I had to be a good lawyer first. And that was difficult. But when I was asked to be a judge, even though I was dean of a law school that I loved very much, I thought, here's my chance. And it sort of fell into my lap, and that's really why I think I ended up as a judge. Judge, you entered the law uh, as a profession when there were very few women uh, doing what you did. I happen to know uh, some of the stories because, as I said, you really you are my professional mother. But uh, can you just give 
my viewers and my listeners some sense of what it was like for you uh, being a young woman lawyer when you first started to practice? Being a young woman lawyer, I remember one of my first cases was a divorce case for a friend of mine, and I had never done it, and I went into court, and the case was called, and the judge came out. Where is the lawyer for the person suing? And I said, I'm the lawyer, Honor. He said, sit down. I sat down, and he said to the bailiff, we'll wait till all the lawyers arrive. When he finally called on me, he said, I'm not going to let you ask questions. Let me just take care of it, which he did. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong here. And happily, that judge was voted out of office. I didn't like election of judges, but I sure liked the election that year. But when I became a dean of a law school, I found that I had not, I was the first woman dean at SC. It wasn't the faculty. It was the spouses of the faculty wondering, why am I there? Am I looking for another husband? What am I doing? And I very carefully had each of them to dinner with their spouses, let them see my husband, whom I love dearly, and my children, and cooked the dinner myself to let them know, you know, I'm not literally looking for another husband. I'm looking to try to make the court system better. And it happened that my husband was a lawyer who later became a state court judge, was also interested in improving the system. And uh, you certainly had, uh, Judge Nelson, for those of us who know, uh, what I think is a storybook marriage and certainly a great influence to me in what a partnership could be. So God bless you and God bless uh, Judge Jim. Lisa Kloppenberg, uh, you are a law school dean. You are a former uh, Judge Nelson clerk. You have written this phenomenal book that tells the story of Judge Nelson. Tell us why you did it. Well, I think once you get to know Judge Nelson, you see how incredible she is. Tanya, for you and me and so many other hundreds of, probably thousands of students and clerks, she's just taught us how to live. You know, she's powerful, but kind. She listens to people. You go into her chambers, I mean, a federal judge, and she's asking you, would you like cookies or water or coffee? She takes care of people, right? Helps us feel safe, secure, building peace. So she was just such a role model for me. And I had two women professors in law school. I'm really fortunate that she was one of my professors. And it showed me that a woman could have a powerful position in the law, could be happily married, could be a mother. We could really have um, a full life in the law. And her passion for justice just grabbed my heart. And I think that happened for so many other people who've gotten to know Judge Nelson. Explain the book title, The Best Beloved Thing is Justice. I found that because it was the dedication line in her first textbook. So she dedicated this to her family with love and and used a very prominent Baha'i quote. Um, So Judge, what did that quote mean to you? Well, that quote really came from the Baha'i faith. When I was in law school, raised as a good Christian, uh, really started 
by marriage, my husband-to-be was also a counselor at the Culver Palms YMCA, and I learned to admire him very much. Uh, in law school, one of his former very good fraternity brother friends was president of our law school class. His name was Donald Barrett, introduced all of us to the Baha'i faith. He was not yet a Baha'i and encouraged us to go to Baha'i firesides, which we ended up having at our home for about 60 years. One of the quotes that caught my eye out of the writings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith, was, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom, if thou desirest me, neglect it not that I may confide in thee. I didn't like the adversary system. I didn't like it in law school, and I didn't like it when I became a lawyer. I didn't like it when I became a professor. And this led to my great interest in mediation, which also came from the Baha'i writings about the best way to resolve conflict is through consultation. And the closest thing to that is mediation. I would say the other important thing about that story with uh, your UCLA law experience, Judge, was you were one of two women in that class. You were, there was only one black student. And partly why your class president stood up and said, we're not going to join the national legal fraternity is because they wouldn't admit you women and the black student. And you thought that was unjust and unfair. And so did he. So I think that was a big attractor for you to learning about the faith. Yes, thank you. Lisa, you are dean of a law school, and we see that the way that people communicate on campuses these days is so divisive. I mean, it seems that, you know, the college campuses and even in higher ed, they've become less a place where we have respectful debate about free ideas than it is like name calling and, you know, deciding who can't come. Uh, judge, while you are a uh, federal judge and you decide cases or controversies that arise under the Constitution and the laws of the United States, you are also um, a big champion of mediation, of learning how to meet in the middle, uh, of figuring out what the middle should be, and of really getting people to communicate uh, with one another, to engage in healthy, respectful conversation. How did you do that? <laughs> I mean, you were dean of USC during some really divisive times. I mean, people were fighting about Vietnam. There were so many culture war struggles. Uh, what's your advice to the rest of us? Use food. <laughs> you know, quite honestly, on my own faculty, there's the old faculty that liked the law school the way it has always been, then the new bloods that wanted to change the law school, and they often didn't talk to each other. So the first thing I did at faculty means was to say, if you come right on time, there'll be plenty of food to eat. It's amazing, because sometimes when they were not talking to each other, but when there was food, they all showed up together. The minute they started eating together, they began talking to each other in a very civil way. So after that, whenever I would sense tension in a group, the first thing I'd do, come into my office, and I'd tell 
Sally, my secretary, phone over to the cafeteria. Or I kept, a, I used to buy a hundred boxes of Girl Scout cookies. I did this when I became a judge because we had tension providing judges. And one judge liked chocolate chip cookies. If for the minute that he walked in, I handed him a box of chocolate chip cookies. He stopped <laughs> being very curious about it. I will call him in. But it's funny how you get people who, when they begin to eat together, they talk together, they relax, the tensions go away. So it's a funny answer to say, what did I do? Food. Lisa, talk to us about how that philosophy of governing, of managing uh, law professors and law students, how does that influence you in your own deanship? The judge was dean of USC during a tumultuous time. You're a dean at a, during a tumultuous time. How does her philosophy impact you? Well, it's really made a huge difference on in my life. I learned about mediation in her class. I took some extra lessons in mediation, and it's a lot about listening, really trying to listen not with having the answer in your own head, but really trying to be open to the other person's point of view and trying to find common ground. And there's that back and forth. You're listening both for what they say, but also the emotions, the feelings behind it. What are their deeper interests? So that has helped me all the way along. I mean, it's helped in my family. <laughs> it's helped with um, dealing with students. I'm now acting president of Santa Clara. So in every administrative job I've had for 20 years at two universities, it's really uh, been a key to how I treat people. I do do the food and cookies as much as I can, like Judge Nelson, uh, but the heart of it is really that kind of listening, taking it in, being open and trying to find some common ground to work together in the future. People talk about finding common ground, but that's easy to do when you already kind of like the other person. But if someone's being uh, you know, antagonistic or difficult, it's harder to do that. But Judge, you still do that. You have done that. Uh, I know a story. Um, I'd love it if you elaborated. Uh, during this tumultuous period where there were students demonstrating and you were dean of the law school, the chief of police at the time, uh, Chief Davis, I believe he called you a name. I think he called you a commie. Uh, tell us about that experience and your relationship with him subsequently. Well, what happened was we, create, we created the Western Center on Law and Poverty. USC, UCLA, and Loyola all joined, but a resident was in my law school when it first started out. And the purpose was to bring about equal justice. The director, who later went on to Harvard, as a matter of fact, my husband Jim and I sat up with him all night one night saying, Let's bring the police chief in. Let's sit and listen to each other. Well, no. He said, we have to gain credibility. So the Western Justice Center of Law and Poverty sued the police officer. He went on channels 5, 7, and 11 and called me that liberal communist at USC. 
Well, you can imagine we had a relatively conservative board of trustees at USC. I had the trustees to worry about, alumni to worry about, and the like. One dear friend, now deceased, Judge Arthur Alarcon, called me and said, Dorothy, you've got to do something about this. Let's all arrange you for you to meet with the police chief at a restaurant downtown. So I agreed, and Judge Alarcon and I, and the police chief was there. I was drinking my Shirley Temples. He was having martinis, and I forget what the judge was having. And the point was, we would just meet for an hour. Well, an hour went by, and I explained that wasn't it better to let these problems of racism be solved in the courts than on the streets. And of course, I had nothing to do with it, understand, Mr. Priestie. This was the decision of the board that I don't sit on. Well, he said, let's have another round. And my husband had dropped me off and was circling the restaurant. And it became eight o'clock, then nine o'clock. And I said, well, I've intruded on you, chief. We better say goodnight. He said, let's have one more round. And my husband took me back. Unbeknownst to me, the owner of the restaurant was the father of one of my students. And I go to law school the next day. Dean caves in to police chief was the big, huge headline. So bad that the press and topping of the university called he said, come on over, Dorothy, I think we need to talk. Well, it actually took a couple of years to talk to alumni that here the chief thought I was a communist, the students thought I was a Nazi, and I was just trying to bring peace in the community. The odd part about it is that the police chief, two years later, ran for the state senate and came and asked if we could put my picture with him on his campaign literature. I very politely declined. <laughs> Most people, when they come in to meet, had made up their minds. I'm gonna, boy, let them talk, and then I'm gonna talk. When they're eating, they can't think of that so much anymore. And that there's something that's automatically tension-reducing when you're sharing something together. I want to point out a couple of things that I think are significant about your tenure at USC. In 1967, uh, when you first assumed the deanship, and I believe you started as interim dean, there were five women in the law school class, five. When you left your deanship at USC in 1980, there were 67 women in the law school class. Let's talk a little bit about what you did for the law school as a whole. In the late 1960s, when you joined USC, everybody thinks of it now as this fabulously wealthy institution, which it certainly is. But when you joined, its endowment was, I think, around half a million dollars, uh, which is not very much. When you left, you'd grown it to over $6 million. So people should realize you get a lot of value sometimes by being nice and uh, serving tea and cookies and listening to the other side. That's how you get what you want sometimes. Speaking of which, uh, Lisa, you actually talk about that in the book, uh, the judge's very special management style where she kind of gets people to do what she wants them to do 
they just walk away thinking it's their idea. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that because you write about this in your great book. Well, she's very persistent. You know, she's diplomatic and nice and kind, but she's persistent. So I think Judge Jim told me, you know, it took me a while as a new husband to learn that if Dorothy said, well, maybe it'd be better if it were a little warmer in here, that was like a direct order. Could you please go turn up the thermostat? <laughs> so I think she's very kind and persistent, but if she had an idea that she was passionate about, she pursued it. So when she started teaching about mediation, that was not popular. It was not prevalent in the courts. It was kind of odd. And some of the faculty at USC, a couple of them dismissed it as, oh, that's that woman's thing. Now it's such a huge part of managing our federal and state courts, and I think offering sometimes more effective solutions than litigation. She just kept persisting. Someone compared her to Teddy Roosevelt in a dress. Uh, just that, you know, keep plugging along, keep moving your ideas forward. And uh, she does that in a beautifully humble, gentle, uh, diplomatic, but really uh, persistent way. When she was dean of the law school from 1967 to 1980, and she increased the number of women and people of color so much in the school, for five of those years, she was the only female dean at an ABA-credited law school in the country. That's just astounding to me. So every room she walked into, whether it was the board of trustees at USC or the gathering of deans in Washington, D.C., it was almost all men in suits. But she was herself. She was honest to her own style. She didn't try to become a 1970s man. Right? She really was herself with her beautiful dresses and her love of roses and her love for the color blue. You know, she was herself. Judge, if we could just talk a little bit about what I think is your beautiful personal story and the beautiful love you had with Judge Jim. You were a federal judge, Judge Jim was a state court judge. I want you to tell people how you two met. Well, we met at the Culver Palms YMCA. Actually, first, my sister was at the Wilshire YMCA after World War II. They didn't have enough male counselors. She became a counselor. There she met her future husband, who was captain of the tennis team at UCLA and played basketball. And... She came home one day and said, you know, we have a new counselor. His name is Jim, and I think you'll like him. So that summer, I had a boys club of 18 little eight-year-olds. They called themselves the Gorillas. He had a boys club of 18 little eight-year-olds, and they called themselves more property the Cherokees. In those days, it was okay for them to wear feathers. Well, we go on field trips, and... We had these big trucks that we went in. I took my kids with Santa Monica to go fishing. As he went down, little Herbie always at my side said, Dorothy, Dorothy, the cherries are coming. I said, oh, good. So I went down one part of the pier. Did they come sit with us? No. Next week, I took them up to the observatory, and there was a mile-high hike up to the observatory, as we were going up the high, little Herbie said, Dorothy, Dorothy, the Cherokees are following us. I said, let's wait. So we waited at the top of the trail, and Jim came over and said, it seems to me that we like the same things. 
why don't we take our field trips together? So we were married for 60 years. We kept taking field trips together and I felt the luckiest person in the world because not only did he encourage me, there were tough times at school, when he became a judge, it made much easier because if I had to stay a little late, he would go home early. But we traveled together, we became Baha'is together. He was chairman of our National Assembly. And when we gathered for a World Congress in New York with 40,000 Baha'is, when my husband and my children sat next to me and my husband introduced the mayor of New York, tears rolled down my eyes. I thought, this is my family. And we all believe in the same thing. And we all want to wake make the world a better place to live. But he was an athlete. I had took up golf because I didn't like being a golf little. This was before the kids came. He took up scuba diving. Well, <laughs> my kids took up scuba diving and I didn't, I love snorkeling, but I took up scuba diving. He took up flying. And actually I learned how to fly an airplane. I take off and land, but I never got my license. I didn't enjoy it as he did. He hated gardening. I love gardening. He built our hi-fi. I built our rose garden. We had complimentary loves, but also I wasn't going to be left behind because I enjoyed being with him so much. And our children, I think, benefited a lot from that. Before we go, Lisa, there's so much that you and I know about the judge that we don't have time. It's probably a good thing. You wrote this incredible book, The Best Beloved Thing is Justice, where uh, you tell in a really fascinating, interesting way, the story of a life that I think is hard to capture in pages. What do you want people to know about the judge? What do you want people to take away from your extraordinary book, which tells the story of an extraordinary woman? Well, I do think the history is important, how she was such a trailblazer for other women in her, everything she did. But I also think it's what she accomplished. She always promoted justice, equality, peace. These are the things she loved and cared about. She wanted the justice system be better for little kids. She wanted um, people to get along better on law faculties. Everything she touched, she tried to make it more peaceful and just. So I really feel not only did she have an influence over so many lives, but she changed systems. She helped mediation become a regular part of the work of the federal courts. She helped merit selection become part of how we choose federal judges. So it's not such an old boys club. So, I mean, she really made tremendous substantive differences while also being such a trailblazer and, and just being such a lovable person. <laughs> Well, I, I think also, Lisa, uh, some congratulations are due to you, not just on the interim presidency, um, on your deanship, on this book. It is an honor for me to be a part of this family of clerks and also to know that women like you are out there in the academy shaping the perceptions of young lawyers across the board. Uh, young women are going to have a very different idea 
of what the law can offer them because of the two of you. Oh, but before you uh, go, I have to get your views. Uh, Judge Nelson, what do you think about Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and the history that she's made recently? I think she's fabulous. I think she's amazing. In fact, one of my current clerks who happens to be from another country, uh, a basketball player over six feet tall, as he walks in the room, she commands the room. Her goal is to be a clerk to the new justice. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that if not this year, the following year that she might have a chance to become a clerk. I think we're very lucky. And I think it's wonderful for our justice system that she is sitting where she is sitting. Lisa and I have both benefited greatly uh, because you are sitting where you are sitting. And I'm gonna let Lisa have the last word, but I will not let you leave without saying right now in front of everybody, uh, that you have always had my back. You've always been not just a mentor and a guide, but a friend. You have counseled me. You have prayed with me and for me. Uh, you have given me great advice about the law, about justice, and about just um, what's right. So with that, Judge Nelson, thank you for always being there for me. And I love you. And I'm going to let Dean Kloppenberg, acting president uh, Kloppenberg, have the last word uh, because she wrote this incredible book, The Best Beloved Thing is Justice. Thank you so much, Tanya, for making it possible to share Judge Nelson's amazing story. We're very excited about our new justice. And this is what Judge Nelson has been fighting for all her life, from going from two women in her law school class and no women faculty members to the point where we can have a black woman on the Supreme Court and, and the Supreme Court will eventually look more like the face of America. That's what we need to do with our justice system. So thank you, Your Honor, for being such a trailblazer for justice. I love you too. And you are both two of the most amazing clerks out of my hundreds of clerks that I've ever had. Thank you both. Thank you, Judge.